Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast, where we sit down with everyday people who do extraordinary things. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. Good morning from Mighty Sparrow. It's another early one, just before the 6 a.m. hour here. So I've got a little bit of time, and I wanted to hop on. Pretty excited, actually, for this early in the morning. But uh, I talked to my good buddy, Porter. Last night, and we haven't talked in, I don't know, a couple of months or whatever, but he's down in Newport, and he is a yacht broker. And one of the things, he specializes in motor yachts and mega yachts and things like that. But back in the olden days, when we were in our 20s, we uh, we used to start out by ripping around on Hobie 16s and Pearson Ensigns and all these things. Just learning our, our love of the, the old water and the love of sailing. Meanwhile, cut to the point. <laughs> mm. We got into a sort of a discussion about the podcast and stuff. And he had mentioned that one of the questions and a lot of the people that he deals with are actually... Uh, coming to him sort of from the same vantage point, if you will. And that is people who have either had that dream of cruising the Caribbean on their own boat or living aboard a boat uh, or just purchasing their first boat, like making that leap. And a lot of the stuff that they wonder about is just how how you actually go about sort of doing that. And though I am not an expert on, on buying a boat or really anything uh, for that matter, except maybe my own personal boat, <laughs> uh, I do think that uh, maybe I can shed a little bit of light on my experience uh, being a liveaboard sailor, also cruising down to the Caribbean. I've been fortunate enough to spend two winters down there, pretty much just uh, meandering from island to island and enjoying the sort of quiet uh, Caribbean vibes down there. And yeah, I, I don't know. I figure might as well kind of dive into some of that. So before we get started, as as usual, got to say it, uh, if you want to support the podcast, head over to Patreon. The link will be in the description. And uh, if you want to reach out to the show, which many of you guys have been, which is fantastic, uh, just head over to SailingIntoOblivion.com. And obviously, there's a lot more content on YouTube at, guess what, Sailing Into Oblivion. <laughs> I try to keep it very simple. Uh, big thanks, though, to the Patreon family that's continuing to grow. So I appreciate that very, very much and uh, definitely prods me to keep getting it done. We're actually be putting the mast up on a boat next door with a wonderful character uh, who is going to be sticking around for another week. And I'm hoping desperately that he is a man of his word and will actually come and sit down with me and, and tell us some of his, uh, his stories because he has lived a lifetime, and uh, he's been out and done some pretty incredible stuff on his boat. So 
fingers crossed on that one. Uh, but uh, also just a couple updates. So I hadn't actually looked in on our old friend uh, Rod, who's on uh, Sequoia, but he is now just about to the point where he's going to be shooting the gap between New Caledonia and New Zealand. And then he's going to be in the Tasman, and then he's going to be heading into the South Tasman. So I'm going to have to start watching uh, not only his progress, but the weather down there, because he's basically on the verge of uh, the Southern Ocean, and things get a bit crazy down there. So I'm expecting a little a little bit of thrills and uh, all that sort of stuff. I'm hoping he's going to be able to make the straight shot without having to pull in anywhere uh, because of weather or anything like that, because down there, <clears throat> the weather is very, very serious. So fingers crossed for him. And then just a little little other update on our, our friends from Isabella Corey. I got a text last night. They made it. They are in uh, Virginia. They're at their home destination. And um, Rob took off. He's back on the West Coast. And I'm going to have to give him a call here. Probably this weekend to get the full story of how things went, and I will duly report back to everybody because uh, I think that's just so cool. Those guys were, you know, they, they've done some sailing on the West Coast, but East Coast was wholly new to them, and uh, they took off from Maine all the way down to Virginia, and they made it, and it sounded like everybody's happy, so we'll we'll just have to continue that one because... I don't know. I think that's that's just so cool that uh, those guys came up, they got that boat, and then they took off in it and had themselves a nice little three week adventure, uh, getting it to where it needed to go. So it couldn't be nicer. Eric and Rob just fantastic. So we'll we'll update everybody on that one. So now ah, you've got the glimmer. You've got that look in your eye. You want. You see, let's let's say you see you see that person living on that sailboat, and you think, "Geez, that looks like freedom, man." They're over there, they're on an anchor, don't have to pay any bills like that, which is false because the boat may as well be you. Boat and bill are about the same thing because uh, they do cost a bit of money to maintain, even if you don't have to pay for rent or dockage or something like that. It's still going to cost you. <clears throat> but let's say you got that glimmer. You've always seen it. Or maybe you've had that dream for, for years since you were a, a wee little person. And you've always thought, boy, I want to get a boat. I want to cruise the coast. I'll start out staying on the intracoastal waterway. Then I'll do some little offshore coastal hops. Then maybe go to the Bahamas one year, and then let's go full till down to the Caribbean, and the sky is the limit. Well, time for a bit of a reality check. <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's very, uh, a very qualified dream because I have had that same dream myself, and I was that person long ago in the British Virgin Islands already, but just working as a, a land-based activities director, sort of sailing director at the bitter end. And I remember seeing so many people that bought these boats, sold their houses, did whatever, and were cruising the Caribbean, and the jealousy was throbbing through my body. 
uh, I just was like, how, why, why can't, why am I not able to do that? And how come they are doing it? I don't understand. They don't seem to have jobs and these aren't rich people, not all of them. So it is, it is possible. Um, yeah, I, I think, I think the first, the first and foremost, uh, advice that I would give to anybody who is seriously considering making that sort of big lifestyle change because you it's not like it has to be permanent by any way means you know if you if you have the means you have some savings and you want to purchase a boat within those those limits you get that boat you can cruise on it for a couple of years and then you can sell it it's just like a car it's just like a house you're probably going to lose a little bit of money on it uh, but not necessarily you you could have a fixer upper or something like that but in all walks of life, it's usually good to plan for, you know, losing some cash, but you're really trading that in for all the experiences that you'll have when you do go out and have these adventures. And I think that's a big part of the reason of the lure uh, or the romance of the whole situation is that you get into uh, owning and living on a boat and all of a sudden daily life can become a bit of an adventure and... You never know where you're going to go, and the possibilities are essentially endless. So there is that to consider, and, and that, that definitely pulls a lot of people in. Uh, and then, unfortunately, some of the reality takes hold, and that uh, ends a lot of the dreams for a lot of people. Or just a lot of people don't ever even leave the dock. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things. I've got... Friends who are out there adventuring now, going through highs and lows, and uh, but still at it. You know, they're they're still giving it that chance, and I think that's fantastic. And it's not for everybody, uh, but it is. It's got a whole lot of different forms. So I guess let's let's break those down. We'll try and keep some sort of semblance of a organized podcast here. You can buy a boat just to be all live on a boat in a marina or in an anchorage and treat that as your home. Some of the realities with that, obviously it's it's typically going to be communal living. One of the, the hard things nowadays is it's becoming more and more difficult to find marinas that allow people to live aboard their boats right there on the dock. Uh, it used to be pretty much commonplace, but now it's it's getting a little more tricky, so that's that's one thing you want to consider is maybe where you want to head to and make sure there's plenty of marinas that, or a marina that will allow you to do that. Millions of places that you could anchor for sure, but anchoring does have a few, you know, snafus. If you're going to anchor, you're going to have to get transportation back to and fro, you know, from land. So that means a dinghy, and then also. Typically, depending on where you're at, you may want to have a vehicle as well for things like grocery shopping or trips to West Marine or, you know, who knows. Um, and sometimes that logistically can be a bit of an issue, like where, where do you park your car? Um, so there, there's definitely a few, few things to think of uh, just in that, in that realm. And then there's the nomadic, the nomadic uh, cruiser who's going up and down the East Coast. I have been such a person. I do it a little differently, but you know, spending the winters down in South Carolina and then coming up to Maine in the summertime, and 
that for me, I just do the big offshore hop because that's really all I'm craving is that uh, that nice two week trip out open ocean, couple hundred miles out, and the peace and quiet there. That, that that provides me. <clears throat> Typically, though, it's it's done in a fashion of using little coastal hops or the intercoastal waterway to get from you know as far up here as Maine or as far south as Florida or even around that and into like Texas. And that's definitely doable. Um, if you again really want to sort of pinch the pennies, you can anchor out most of those places, but you will need a dinghy. A lot of marinas will allow, or you can make little agreements where you can pull in there, use their facilities uh, just with your dinghy, and it might not cost as much. Uh, but if you want to be hopping from marina to marina to marina as a transient, as we're called, which I've always felt sort of has a bit of a negative connotation, but whatever. Um, yeah, basically it's going to cost. It's going to cost you money. They charge higher rates for, for transients. Usually it's you know a week or something like that or just a couple of days. I want to say... Pretty much, and I this is just a ballpark out of my head, but I would say between like two to four or five dollars per foot per night, uh, depending. I've been in some where it's it's more in the four dollar range, and I've been in some where they cut you some slack and and break it down to you know under two dollars, which is pretty cool. But that is definitely a pretty pretty big expense. But for my money, I love being on the dock because I love being able to meet people and sort of hang out, swap stories, spin yarns, as they say. And I don't know, I've always thought that that was, that was pretty cool. I enjoy the communal living, you know, not all the aspects are great. Hopping in a filthy shower or, uh, you know, when some, some transient comes in there and <laughs> destroys the bathroom and then, you know, you've been there for two months and you walk in like, oh man, or there's a, a line of six people in front of you to get the laundry done. Ooh, that's a stinger. These are all realities, folks. I'm just, I'm just dishing out the truth. <laughs> but there's going to be cocktail hours and group barbecues and things like that. That again, you're going to be able to swap wisdom and stories and. That's one of the other cool things when you're around a lot of other sailors. Everybody's doing projects on their boats. And so when you come up with stuff that you need to do or ideas that you're looking for to spruce things up, you've got a huge amount of resources, i.e. people that are trying to do essentially the same thing. And that's kind of cool. I've, I've always loved it. Um, yeah, just, just marina life. Plus, you get to just live on the boat. And if you pick the right marina... Even when it's really crummy out and windy and all that sort of stuff, you're in a place that doesn't have the waves. I mean, when I was in Ocean City for that week, it was pretty tremendous to have 40 sustained 40 knot winds and uh, zero wave action. But, they, I mean, the boat might have been healing over, but at least it was pretty consistent. So you want to, you definitely want to pick, pick and choose. But I, I would say that brings me on to, um, one other sort of reality, when you live on a boat, as opposed to living in a house, a house sort of affords you a bit more shelter from the environment, if you will. Uh, when it starts to get rainy and windy, 
and wavy, your whole boat is going to be moving and reacting to those conditions. And sometimes it's not, it's not all that pleasurable. Um, I, I had, uh, just the other night it, it rained like crazy. It was windy up here, gusty, and just the noise sort of kept me up on the boat and the boat's sort of vibrating, even though it's out of the water. The boat's sort of vibrating. Oh, there's the alarm. Jeez Louise. I don't even know why I set that thing. Um, yeah, it, it kept me up for quite some time. So you're gonna have you're gonna have times where uh, Mother Nature doesn't want to let you go to sleep, and uh, you're you're essentially um, you know you're at Mother Nature Mother Nature's whim. So you have to sort of expect that. But again, that's part of the adventure, right? So I don't know. Food for thought with that one. But yeah, it's definitely doable, um, and and on pretty much any size boat, I would think. Um, typically, the marinas and things that I've been to, and the areas that I've been at, most of the the liveaboard boaters are in that thirty, forty foot range. Some catamarans, mostly monohulls, and yeah, it's it's uh, it's definitely a doable thing. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, general housekeeping things that, uh, I think people don't consider sometimes when shifting from a residence on land to living aboard a boat. Cause in, in the most parts, if something's wrong with your toilet, you call a plumber. If something's wrong with the, uh, the furnace, you call, well, I guess a plumber. <laughs> if there's something wrong with the refrigerator, you can call a plumber, uh, but it's, you know, on a boat, a lot of those things and a lot of those systems, they're, they're, I would, I don't want to say they're dulled down because on some boats, it seems like they're more complicated, but you kind of can fix most of them without the need of an expert. Um, you can get a good book and a YouTube, uh, subscription or whatever, and, YouTube is just one of the greatest resources on the planet when it comes to fixing stuff. Just from the content volume alone, you can, you know, you could type in engine won't start, or you could actually type in 1985 Perkins 4108 will not start. And you're going to have like 18 videos come up with people who have dealt with the same issue and decided to, you know, throw it up on YouTube. So. I don't know. It's definitely pretty cool, but it is one of those things where each boat has has a plumbing system, it has a water system, uh, it has you know uh, a toilet system, and then you've got a propane or an electric range system. Uh, you've got your whole electronics. Uh, some of them have heaters. Some of them have air conditioners. Um, so there's there's a lot of little systems that go on, but they're all pretty pretty much manageable, more manageable, I believe, or I think, in my opinion, than, than being at your house and having, having something go really wrong with the plumbing. It's not like I just go start monkeying around with all the copper pipes. Uh, but on a boat, it seems like I go and monkey around with those things all the time. <laughs> so it is kind of interesting, but um, <clears throat> definitely something to think about. Especially if you're if you're sort of a handy person and you like to fix things up and and do all that, then uh, it might be right up by, right up your alley, and it, it's just a way to save money essentially. You know, anytime you ever have to. 
call somebody onto a boat, it's going to be expensive. I remember having my fridge on the fritz and uh, essentially, you know, between the compressor and the actual cooling plate that's in the, the fridge or freezer, you know, little particles of, of debris and stuff get into that little line. And because some of those bottlenecks are so small, that little debris, boom, it can plug it up. And then the fridge stops working. And I thought, man, I'm going to have to replace the whole thing for a tune of like $1,500. And time I didn't have very much money. And oh, man, it was a pain. But uh, brought somebody on. It costs like five or 600 bucks to have this guy there for like half a day. I couldn't believe how expensive it was. And he couldn't even fix the problem. Um. And in the end, all I had to do was boil some water, put it in the uh, right next to the cooling plate, wait 15 minutes, and uh, it kicked that little particle right back into the compressor, not to be seen for months and months uh, down the down the road. And anytime it happens now, that's the same thing I do, and it always fixes it. Hopefully, it'll last a many, 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 many years to come. But uh, I guess we'll we'll sort of see. Hmm. Oh, I got to take a little pause here. And we're back. Sorry about that. Well, um, yeah, so there's there's some some hidden stuff in there. But again, like I say, and I'll say it a million times, it's part of the adventure. It's part of uh, that can-do sailor attitude of I can probably fix it myself, or at least I'm going to give it the old college try, <laughs> if you will. So... That's sort of, I don't know, that's sort of the cruising life. You know, you're meeting lots of people, all that sort of stuff. And let's say you've got a goal in mind. And your goal is, I want to make it all the way down to the major parts of the Caribbean. I want to see Grenada. I want to see Dominica, St. Lucia, St. Kitts, uh, the British Virgin Islands, St. Thomas, Puerto Rico. I want to do it all. But. I've never lived on a boat and I've never owned a boat. So my advice on that, first and foremost, before you ever think about purchasing a boat, would be to go down to a place like the BVI and charter a boat. You can do it with a captain. You can bring a friend down there who knows what they're doing. Or you can learn how to sail and do all that beforehand and then go down and charter a boat. Just to see what it's like to try and live aboard a boat for, you know, a week or 10 days. You're going to have a great time regardless. So, you know, no worries on that. It will cost a pretty penny. But what you're going to spend there, you are going to save if by the end of that week you're like, dude, it's like camping on the ocean and it kind of smells bad (laughs) you know you might have that take on it and it will save you probably year or more of uh, hassle of buying a boat figuring out you actually don't really like it and you prefer living in a house and uh, now you got to sell the thing so I would say that is the best thing for people to do is just get out there and try it, and try it in a beautiful setting. Um, you know, because you're even if you're in an idyllic place like the BVI, you're gonna find that hey, you're still gonna get squalls. You're still gonna have a rainy day. You're gonna have a windy day. You're gonna have a calm day. And uh, no matter how beautiful it is around you, you're still gonna have to deal with those elements. And that is the reality of of being on a boat uh, in you know 
and living on it. So you got to sort of picture yourself owning that boat and sort of having to deal with it and all the costs and things like that that are inherent in doing so. Uh, but yeah, so after you do that, let's say you're you're just like, oh man, life changing. That's it. Me and the wife, we're we're going for it. We're gonna we're gonna get back to the states. We're gonna start searching for boats. We're putting the house up for sale. Then it's time to start looking at your budget, and this one is tricky. This one trips up almost everybody because when you start looking for boats, you've got this budget in mind. Let's say you have $60,000 that you can spend on a boat. The cost of the boats that you're looking at, if you got sixty grand, I would say you want to be looking at boats that cost about forty grand, because you're looking for a boat... Um, you know, you, you get a, a used boat or something like that. You're going to have to put a ton of money into it after you purchase it, almost guaranteed, without any question. Even a new boat, a lot of times, you know, you buy that boat and there's a lot of things that don't come with it that you're actually going to need. I mean, I remember when I was searching for West Sales, there was one that we saw out in Newport and... I'm looking at it, and the price was good. It was below my budget uh, by, I think, like maybe four or five grand. And I started looking around, but it didn't have a life raft, and it didn't have a wind vane, and it only had one old set of sails. Um, gosh, there were a couple other things that it didn't have on there, uh, things like an EPIRB, uh, any of the safety gear, stuff like that. And I started, you know, I remember getting back to the hotel room that night and I'm like, man, and I added up all those things and it came out to be, I think it was like around 10 grand or something. And so I'm all of a sudden, I'm like, well, look, I try and pick that boat up. I'm going to be way over budget uh, right from the get go. And so I sort of changed my mindset into, you know, I took that number of that stuff, and anytime I got onto a boat that didn't have one thing or the other, I would I would add those into the actual cost, and that helped a lot because it, uh, you know, it it really you don't want to start out on the wrong foot because you know there's that old thing like boat means bring on another thousand. There's a million of those uh, about boats because they do. They always they, they cost you uh, a decent amount of money and can. So it's it's really important not to overreach and overextend yourself because then you're pinching pennies. And on boats, you don't want to do that. You really want to make sure you're you're getting the right stuff that you need to make sure the boat one is safe and two is comfortable and fun. And if you're constantly pinching pennies and, and things are falling apart around you, it's not all that fun, and it's definitely not safe, uh, especially if you're trying to get a little further away from the land than the intercoastal. So that's definitely something to think of. Um, the, other, the other big thing I would say always, always recommend is before you hand over any cash, you definitely get the uh, <clears throat> get the old inspection, the old survey done. It costs usually six, seven hundred dollars or something, depending on who you get and where. But uh, a marine survey is an absolute must. Those guys come in with a microscope and they will tell you everything that is wrong with this boat or potentially wrong. And it's just you know, it's knowledge, and it's not them saying you shouldn't buy this boat it's like listen this is what you're actually getting i'm an expert i look at a thousand of these things and 
here are some of the issues and and essentially they're just trying to say okay well this is how much work and money and effort you're gonna have to put into this boat to get her up to snuff um so it's always worth doing that and you know typically that comes with a sea trial as well so you can get out on the water on the boat and just get a little feel for it so definitely two recommendations yeah do not go don't overreach as far as your budget and then always make sure you get that sea trial but now you got the boat and you're thinking to yourself all right what are we gonna do (laughs) and at this point it's it's pretty much uh I, I like to just sit down with a map, a uh, map of the old United States, I would say, and go, all right, well, we are here, and where should we go? Because, you know, the, the big deciding factor as far as a yearly <clears throat> time frame is the hurricane season. You know, uh, a lot of people will spend the hurricane season down south during the summer. I mean, it's super hot and all that sort of stuff, uh, but... And you have the the hurricanes coming in, so you kind of have to have an evacuation plan, so to speak, or just sort of risk risk it and see. Um, but like things like insurance, some insurance policies require you to be north of uh, said point, like North Carolina or something like that, um, to continue your coverage. And so you do have to sort of watch out for that. But <clears throat> typically, what you're looking at the 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 nomadic uh transient sort of lifestyle you're going to be moving up and down with the seasons and so you may stay in multiple places or you might have a few favorites uh but that first that first or second season that you do that is basically training you know you're you're essentially if the goal is to get down to the caribbean then you're using those first couple of years or those first months as just training so you're wanting to move from one place to another get used to pulling into docks and anchoring and sailing the boat and watching the weather and doing all that sort of stuff getting familiar with everything because the next step is essentially if if you're trying to do it in in sort of steps and not take a big huge giant leap uh the next step would be go and hit up the caribbean uh by way of the bahamas because the bahamas are just absolutely breathtaking islands there's millions of them down there you can find your own little islands but they have all these cool little towns and harbors and all that sort of stuff so it's definitely doable, and it's one of those things. Like, let's say you're you're up in uh, Massachusetts, and that's where you spend uh, the summer up there. And now it's time to go south. You head on down, you know, via coastal hops or the intercoastal, and get down to Florida. And boom, that's where you're. That's your leaping point to get over to the Bahamas. Now, the Bahamas. I haven't been there in years, but I do know when we went there last time, we had to get a cruising permit. And that cost, you know, a few hundred bucks at the time, but it allowed you to cruise, I think for like three months or something. I think it was 90 days. Uh, every, every little Caribbean island country is, has its own sort of set of regulations and rules. I know there's been some islands I've checked into and it's cost mere dollars and, um, other ones where, yeah, it's a little bit more expensive. I think the proper Caribbean as far as, you know, the Virgin Islands and South, it's typically going to be a little less expensive because the the Bahamas are such a popular cruising ground because it's so close to Florida that uh, I think 
I think they sort of have, you know, they've wised up to the whole thing over all the decades. And, uh, you know, they know that it's a revenue source for them because they're providing these beautiful islands for you. And like it or not, boats are, uh, impact that, that little environment. So, you know, you, you should have to pay for it. You really should because, you know, it's, uh, it's a gift. It's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> Oh man, so you cruise the Bahamas, you have some highs, you have some lows, you spend, you know, a few months down there, and then come March or April, you start making your way back to the States, and now it's time to get back north, uh, slowly but surely, and again, because you're trying to escape the hurricane season, you get up, let's say you come all the way up here to Maine, and uh, you either haul the boat out up here, do a little bit of repairs because, you know, typically about once a year, you're going to want to haul that boat out just to clean the bottom off, repaint it, uh, do any of the big, big projects that need to be done, and then uh, plop her right back in the water and the adventure continues. You can go up to Nova Scotia, Newfoundland. The real adventurous, you can go over to Greenland. Holy cow. Possibilities. They're endless. It's amazing. Mm. But it is uh so that's that that'd be like stage two and then as far as the the imaginary goal here stage three is to take the big leap get down to the caribbean um and i i don't know i mean for me for me personally part of the allure of of the whole sailing thing is to go offshore it's not everybody's cup of tea it's uh it just isn't. It's it's a whole different environment out there. It's full of absolute beauty and mystery and, I don't know, excitement. I, I absolutely love it. But it's also can be pretty ugly out there as well. Uncomfortable, cold, wet, scary, terrifying, um, everything. It, it's it's uh, Maybe that's what I like about it because it is a bit of everything and it's this just foreign world uh, no land in sight and uh, not for a couple hundred miles because that if you're if you're really trying to get down let's say you want to make it down to saint martin which is sort of in the corner of the caribbean the northeast corner and you're coming from cape hatteras you know you've got yourself uh, a nice little sail you can break it up by going to bermuda so maybe five six days get to bermuda and then another week to 10 days to get all the way down to St. Martin. That's pretty, pretty epic adventure right there for sure. You know, taking the other route, you could go through the Bahamas yet again, cruise that, and then do the hop through the Turks and Caicos and all that down to Dominican Republic and then Puerto Rico. And the hard part with that one is that a lot of that time you are going to be fighting into the wind. You know, you got to realize that the winds are typically coming from the east, headed towards the west. And if you, I've done that on a delivery trip where we left from, oh, where did we leave from? I want to say we left from Fort Lauderdale or something, but uh, headed to the BVI and, or headed to St. Thomas in the USVI. And the owner didn't want to go very far offshore. No more than, I think, 50 miles or something. And we tacked and beat our way all the way down there into southeasterly winds for nine days. Nine days, man. Golly. And we could have probably made it down there in six days had we just gone straight east 
until we got to longitude 65 and then turned straight south and gotten right in there. But, you know, it was a learning experience, that's for sure. But, man, beating into the wind for nine days. If you can, I'm sure you can sense my disgust at that. But regardless, I'm getting into the weeds here. Um, So now let's say you plunk yourself down and uh, you do the offshore passage. You get that adventure. The goal is to get to the Caribbean, your boat. You know, if you're going offshore, you want to make sure that boat's pretty hardy. It's not uh, some flimsy... uh, pile uh that's just ready to sink you you know you're gonna have to have proper offshore gear uh that includes not only life rafts and safety gear like we talked about on the last episode but it means foul weather gear and uh food stores and you know extra spares of like water pumps impellers there's a whole lot of stuff that goes into doing a two-week offshore passage that uh, will up the ante as far as cost goes. But let's say you take care of all that because the last two years you've done nothing but research and pour over how to become an offshore sailor and this, that, and the other thing. And so you're pretty much ready and you do that trip and you get down to the Caribbean. So now you're there. You are in the promised land, people. You are, you are absolutely loving it. And so essentially at this point, what what do you do? <laughs> I'm here on the islands. What do I do? Well, living in the Caribbean is uh it's pretty cool actually. For the most part, you know, each each island country is a little different than the last. They've all got great people. Um, they've got good spots, bad spots, touristy spots, uh, empty spots. And some of them are known much more for their anchorages. Uh, the BVI has quite a few marinas, but they're not that cheap. Um, so it's it's far more uh, cost-effective to be anchoring or picking up mooring buoys uh, wherever you go there. We go down to St. Lucia, halfway down that chain. Um, I spend most of my time on the dock down there in uh, in Rodney Bay. They've got a great yacht club. It's not that expensive, and uh, it's nice. Tons of other cruisers, but I also spend a lot of time out on uh, a mooring buoy out there. The BVI, one of the nice parts is that it is geared, or not the BVI, but the Caribbean is really geared for cruising sailors to be able to. There's a lot of like public dinghy docks, so as long as you have a dinghy, which you definitely want to bring one down there, even if you don't intend on bringing it back, i.e. selling it down there, because usually you can make a nice little profit there. Um, you, yeah, it's, it's geared towards it. So you can, you can go from anchor into your dinghy, get into the town. Uh, and then if you can't just walk to the shops, you can get a taxi and you know, they, the services are there and it's pretty, Pretty much island to island, it's going to be pretty easy to do that. Again, it will cost you a little money, but hey, everything, everything's going to cost you a little something. But <clears throat> it's, again, it's it's just, it's fantastic because you can go, let's say you, you sail from the U.S. and you pull into St. Thomas. I don't believe that you have to check in. I could be wrong on that. It's always good to just go on the Coast Guard's website or a customs website, and they'll they'll tell you. <clears throat> but let's say you cruise over to the BVI, you're gonna 
hop into either Virgin Gorda or Yost Van Dyke or any any port of call except for Roadtown because that one's the one the ferries go to. <clears throat> and it's a bit of a nightmare if you're a sailboat. So go to any other one and it'll be way faster. You're clearing through customs. You've got all your paperwork, your password, passports and such. And uh, now they give you, let's say, a month. And you're cruising in the BVI for a month. Your month comes up. It was fantastic. Let's move on. You, you sort of, I would say, you know, you wait that last week that you're allowed to still be there. That's when you start watching the weather. And uh, the minute you see a good opening to hop over to St. Martin or let's say you're going to head all the way down to Dominica, in one shot then you know you you got that weather you go check out and boom you hit the road or the sea (laughs) so to speak and now you know a few days later you're pulling into the next place and it's the same thing you you come in there you anchor or you pull up to the customs dock you check in give they give you your time and some some of them are super stringent they want to know sort of what your plan is others it's sort of like hey how long you want to stay and i always thought that was so cool dominica was great because they would give you two weeks and they would say you know hey if you want to stay longer just come back and uh tell us and you're pretty much good to go and it's it's pretty cool now let's say you're getting a little low on funds maybe you're in the younger generation or uh you're just uh, you're just one of those people that love to immerse themselves in the communities in which they are presently a part of, and uh, you want to actually work a little bit. That's definitely doable. Uh, the whole time you're down there, if you want to subsidize your your sailing adventure, you know, pay for all the food or pay for the parts and all that sort of stuff. Definitely can find work all through the Caribbean. Um, you want to do it through the proper channels. Uh, each each island has its own strange little rules, but you know places like those custom houses and all that—they're great uh, sources of information as far as how you go about doing it. Because there's a lot of jobs that they they're looking for people to do, and they have to sort of import those people from other other countries. Uh, other places, they're trying to protect as many of the jobs as possible, which is definitely a great idea. So. Uh, it makes it a little little more difficult, but I can remember working on a on a private yacht, and we were in. It was mostly St. Thomas, and then the BVI, and I actually got interviewed for a job in the BVI while I was working on this other guy's boat, like a private boat, and um, I just had to leave the BVI to actually go through the paperwork process because you can't be in the country when you're doing that. And then everything got approved. And then the following year, I went back down there. So there's, you know, there's funny little things like that. But there's always opportunities uh, to be able to to make a little, little extra cash. There's always work to be done. And there's typically, just even in the cruising community, and I don't know the 100% legality of all this, because you're still technically working while in somebody else's country. But Typically, if you're uh, a handy person and you've got some sort of skill set or you don't mind doing the dirty work, you know, as long as you're pretty uh, outgoing and get to know the rest of the cruisers and stuff, you're probably going to be able to find little bits and bobs that uh, people need help with. Sometimes it's just as as easy as going up somebody's mast and changing a light bulb Um, because 
some of the cruisers out there just don't feel like doing it, or maybe they're a little more on the older side, the more experienced side, and uh, they'd rather have some crazy young person go up there so they can take a selfie, you know, put it on Instagram, who knows. <laughs> Ooh, uh, but yeah, so I don't know. Um, and then, yeah, essentially, people typically get down there. There are the Christmas winds. You do have to sort of watch out for that as far as a time frame goes. It gets really blustery right around Christmas. But then January, things even out. The winds are typically more northeasterly in the wintertime. And then as winter changes into spring, the winds start to come a little more out of the southeast. So the typical trend is to start uh, at the first of the year up north in the Caribbean and work your way down the island chain while you've got the northeasterlies. And then once you make your turn, usually in like March or April, that's when you start heading back up and then uh, prepare to hop back to the U.S. or plant yourself on one of those islands sometime uh, around May, June, or as late as July. July, July is typically the calmest month in the North Atlantic, but it is pretty much into the hurricane season. Uh, hurricane season starts June 1st, so typically you're probably not going to be insured to be down there. The other option, instead of going back to the States, is to head on all the way down to Grenada because they are technically out of the hurricane belt. They have been hit before, but it's pretty rare. And they have some pretty good haul-out facilities there for people to do a lot of work on their boats or mothball them, so to speak, and uh, then they just fly home. So there's a lot of options, and that's that's one, you know, you look at the globe, and the Caribbean's this teeny little, teeny little line of, of salt and pepper islands that you, you know, it's it's minuscule. Then you look at the rest of the planet. You know, let's say you you just dig your teeth in and it's awesome and the Caribbean was great and the offshore trip was awesome and oh man, let's go see some history and then you cross over to the med the next year. Jeez, that's that's fantastic. That's a great way to spend a year or two. And then uh, let's say uh, you want to go super deep and uh, you get out, you want to do the South Pacific. So now you can go through the Panama Canal and, and then head out and spend years lost in the South Pacific Islands and uh, and doing all that sort of stuff. And then, hey, you know you know what? I would just want to, before I die, I want to see the whole world. So then instead of going back, you, you head above Australia and then you go into the Indian Ocean and then you go to Madagascar and South America. And you get my point. The world is out there for you. And if you have a sailboat... It's uh, it's going to take some work, but you can actually make it out there. Uh, the possibilities are endless. It's just, just thinking about it right now, it just makes me want to set sail. I This job here in the boatyard, we launched three boats yesterday, four boats, and uh, each one of them, there's always a tinge in my head of like, oh, where are they going? My turn next. <laughs> but... I digress because Sparrow has quite a bit of work to do. <clears throat> uh, but yeah, that's 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 pretty much it. That's some of my advice. And uh, uh, I would say, I, I would say, if you're going to take anything away from this, it is to please, 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 before you purchase a boat, go and get on a boat, whether it's chartering somewhere 
or just walking down to your local marina and talking with people on the boats and seeing if you can crew for them or something like that because it really that the idea of owning a sailboat and sailing over the horizon to some tropical island is just blinding it's just blinding and it blinds you from all of the not so romantic things that come with that lifestyle and you really want to just make sure that you enjoy that and you're up for the challenges so that you can get the rewards before you go and um, the best way to do that is just to get on a boat and experience it as best you can and again it's crewing for people if you got the means you can go and charter if uh, you're really looking to get the technical skills and the offshore experience, then see if you can sign up online for a uh, yacht delivery or something like that. That's how I cut my teeth out there. And I've had, I had some absolutely fantastic, one of the, the greatest ocean crossings I've ever had was my first one on a 68-foot oyster called Imagination, Captain David Miles, who is a legend. I don't know... I, I this is a long time ago. I don't. I hope he's still alive. Uh, but he was. He looked like Dudley Moore. He's British. Freaking awesome. Like we literally. It was. It was one of those trips where we we had cocktails. He and I pretty much every time I was on watch, telling old sailing stories uh, from his life, and then just talking about the old time sailors and. Man, oh man, that was just, we were on that boat for a month and it was fantastic. Plus, we got to visit the Azores and Gibraltar and we ended up uh, in Palma. God, just what an adventure. That was great. And I think I was probably, oh, I was probably only like 23, 24 years old at the time. Amazings, amazings. But uh, yeah, so that's. That's pretty much it for the uh, the podcast today. Uh, I was thinking of adding on the story of the Sean Sia Moore 2 onto this one. And yeah, I think I will. Might as well. There's no reason not to. Um, so the story that you are going to hear uh, was chronicled in a book called A Storm Too Soon by Michael J. Togus. Fantastic book, Edge of the Seat. It's really, really something. Um, it's basically one of the worst case scenarios about having a nasty storm pop up uh, and being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I'm basically, you know, I'm doing most of these these little stories for podcasts, but also putting them on YouTube uh, in video format. I'm not that great at editing yet. So I'm just trying to work with what I have, but I'm just trying to get some more content out there. Um, so without further ado, the story of the Sean. See you more, too. Thanks for listening, everybody, and uh, more to come. Welcome to Sailing Stories. I'm your host, Jerome Rand, uh, aboard Mighty Sparrow as usual. Today, we're going to be talking about another disaster at sea, this time on a 45-foot sailboat called the Sean See you more 2. And these guys took off in the mid to early 2000s. Their intent was to cross from the East Coast around the Cape Hatteras area and head over across the Atlantic to uh, somewhere in the Med. And the captain, JP, had actually done a 
an Atlantic crossing prior to this where he actually tangled with a, uh, a hurricane and was able to survive. That was through and on a different smaller boat that he had previous. So this boat was a bit of an upgrade. Uh, usually people are sort of under the impression that a bigger boat is going to be stronger and deal with bigger seas and such better. It's not always the case, uh, and we can sort of get into that in a bit. But these guys took off uh, in early May, and May has a bit of a reputation in the Atlantic. Uh, typically, people are trying to cross from, say, the Caribbean up and over towards the Azores and then into the Med after that. Uh, but it still may has not so much of a hurricane threat because the hurricane season hasn't officially started. That's June 1st. But it does have the threat of pretty severe low-pressure systems coming off of the Cape Hatteras area, smashing into the Gulf Stream, and then continuing out into the Atlantic. And I've traveled on those waters plenty of times in all different seasons, and it can get pretty hectic, especially in the Gulf Stream area. And the Gulf Stream, for those who don't know, is one of the strongest currents on the planet, the amount of water that's moving in this river in the ocean is greater than every river on this planet combined. So it's a lot of very warm water coming from the Gulf of Mexico, past Florida, and up the East Coast before it sort of slows down and widens out and heads towards Europe. In fact, it's why on the south coast of England you can find palm trees. So you have this huge body of really hot water coming up and then you get these storms that are coming off of the Cape Hatteras area and when the two intermix and the wind is going against that current all hell breaks loose or at least it can and that's exactly what these three sailors are going to find out. Now this this boat as far as I have read seemed to be a very by the book sailors all the safety equipment that you could ever need, plus some extra. They definitely had things on lockdown. Uh, it wasn't a loosey-goosey sort of like, well, we'll just give it a shot sort of thing. These guys knew what they were doing. Although two of the crew were pretty new to the offshore world, the owner of the boat, JP, also the captain, he really knew his stuff, and he had plenty of experience in both storms and just long-distance ocean sailing. And that comes into play. It really does, uh, as far as your confidence level goes. When you're heading offshore, if you haven't done it before, it can be a bit nerve-wracking, a bit stressful. Um, so it, it is one of those things where when you have somebody on board that really has that confidence, that knows how wonderful and how nice it can be out there, as well as violent, it's, it's good to have that sort of experience aboard. So they took off, and the weather forecast looked pretty good for the first few days. I think when they initially left, the winds were blowing from the west. They were pretty much headed to the northeast, and everything seemed to be okay. The Gulf Stream, anytime I've ever had to cross it, that's when I'm really watching the weather report like a hawk. I'm downloading the weather almost every day for the first few days before I'm about to cross the stream, which took typically is only maybe 100 miles wide, so you can typically get across it in one day. But it's really crucial that the wind is either going with or is light. You're really looking for those kind of conditions while you cross the stream. You really just don't want 
the wind against the current and have it become very violent because the waves that build up are absolutely tremendous. They build up fast and it gets really ugly. Plus, because all that warmth is coming off of the Gulf Stream, it has the ability to intensify and accelerate these storms as they get out to that region. And that is what really comes into play here. So they get out to the Gulf Stream and they're riding it. And in fact, the wind ends up dying and they have to actually go and start motoring. They go swimming, they're fishing, they're having a great time. The guys who had never been offshore before were sort of in awe of the stars and and everything, how beautiful it can be. And it absolutely can, especially when it's really calm and the ocean world seems very inviting and, and nice. And you've got dolphins and things are out there and whales. And it's just, it's a beautiful place. And the problem is, every once in a while, it can turn pretty ugly. So one evening, about four, four days, three or four days into this trip, they're checking the weather. And it looks like a low pressure system is heading sort of in their direction. And even up in the clouds... They start to take notice of some pretty ominous-looking, hazy, sort of high-level clouds off in the distance, off to the west. And all that weather is coming from the west, headed to the east. And so they're they're pretty much out of the the proper Gulf Stream at this point. So they're they're feeling pretty good, but they they kind of head a little further south, almost towards Bermuda, just to make sure they're really out of it. And as this weather system sort of intensifies, they start to get the boat ready. So they're initially had put up all of these sort of wind and spray blockers around the cockpit where everybody would kind of hang out. So when waves splash, they won't get you wet. But the winds start to pipe up from 20 to 30 knots pretty fast. And so they end up having to take all this stuff back down. Because with a boat, when you're entering heavy weather... You really want to lessen the amount of anything that a wave can damage on the deck. So things like dodgers and biminis and sunshades, even cushions, all really should come down or at least be lashed on deck because you have to consider and plan for the worst. Whereas if you have a 10-foot wave that crashes on your boat, if you have anything up there made out of canvas or cloth, it's pretty much going to... It has a good chance, at least, of getting torn right off the boat. And damaging a boat is the absolute last thing you want to do because then you have to deal with it in those conditions. The optimum sort of thing is that you've got everything just bedded down and locked up as good as possible so that when you go through all those conditions and you take all those waves and all that happens, nothing really happens and you never really have to get out of that cockpit or even come out from down below. That's optimum. So as they're heading away, they're out of the Gulf Stream, and they're feeling pretty good about that, but the wind is starting to really crank up. It's like hour after hour, it's just notching up, another five knots, another 10 knots, and now it's blowing into the 40s, and 40-knot winds are intense. When it's a sustained wind of 40 knots, that builds the seas up regardless of the Gulf Stream current or any other current, it builds them up pretty big and they start to break and they get pretty scary. It's also, it's extra intimidating because 
on a normal boat, even if you're standing on the boat out at sea, you're only six or eight feet out of the water. So a, a 14 or 15 foot wave is way over your head. And it's one of those things people take pictures and videos of these waves out there and they never, ever do any justice to what it feels like on that boat. So as they're going through this, it's starting to get towards night and they've pulled in all the cushions, they've lashed everything down, and once the winds start to exceed about 50 knots or so, that's when they're, they're pretty much going down to just bare poles, and they're running with the storm, and they actually, to slow the boat down, because now with the waves building up so high, the boat is starting to surf. So the wave picks up the boat, and then the boat slides down the wave at super fast speeds, and it can become pretty out of control. I have never really had too much of an issue on Sparrow because of the hull design of this boat. Being so old and so cumbersome and, and overbuilt, this boat really, it can surf at up to about 20 knots, but it takes such a huge wave to get you there. It's um, And it, it just, Mighty Sparrow loves to just track. It doesn't want to try and round up or even dig into the next wave. It just wants to plow, 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 and then get picked up by the next one. But this is a more modern boat. And again, it's 45 feet long. So if it gets picked up by a 20 or 25 foot wave, it can speed off out of control. And then who knows what's going to happen. So they end up deploying a, a type of a sea anchor called a drogue. And essentially what this is, is uh, a parachute that produces drag in the water. And that allows the boat to sort of have almost like a tether on it. So it's pointing with the wind and with the waves. So it's going with all that, but it's being sort of held back a little bit by this line that's attached to the back of the boat. And that typically will slow the boat down. It will prevent it from speeding up out of control and pretty much just sort of maintain a little bit of uh, better motion in those conditions. And as night comes, you know, all the guys, they end up going down below. They're letting the autopilot take care of the actual steering of the boat. Everything seems to be okay, except for the fact that the winds keep building and keep building. And then the waves, even though it's nighttime, they can still see, you know, from the phosphorescence and everything, that the waves are getting absolutely massive. And what they don't realize is that all along the Gulf Stream, there are little eddies that curly cue off of the main stream, and they have accidentally and not knowingly wandered into a pretty powerful eddy of the Gulf Stream. So it's essentially like they're in the Gulf Stream again. And as the winds go from 50 to 60 to 70, and they're starting to get gusts of 85 knots, which is hurricane strength. I mean, I've personally only felt maybe 70 knot winds. 85 knots is absolutely bananas. I could not even fathom how powerful that would be. And then to be in these waves that are just building and building and building and crashing all around you. Just try and put myself in that picture. And when I read this book, I, I almost, you know, my palms start sweating a little bit because I can, I can imagine up to an extent what it's like because I've been there, but not to the level that these guys were. And thank goodness for that. If I never see those conditions in my life, I'll be pretty happy. So as the night goes on, 
It's just chaos out there. It's crashing waves. They're getting pummeled by breaking waves every so often. The waves are getting absolutely tremendous, you know, up in the 40 to 50 foot range. And the winds are holding around 85 knots, which is, again, essentially they're in a hurricane. And to make it worse, they're in this eddy of the Gulf Stream. And eventually, the autopilot starts to sound pretty bad. It's, uh, it sounds like it's overworking itself. They're starting to surf again, kind of out of control. And none of the guys really want to go up on deck. It's pretty unsafe to be in the cockpit. But they've all got harnesses and clips and stuff. And they end up going up there to see what's happened. And the drogue has broken free. Now, I don't have personal experience using a drogue. Mighty Sparrow has uh, a boomkin, and it has a bowsprit. It has all these, these big wooden posts that come off of either end. And because I have Mongo, the wind vane, I've heard stories of, of drogues getting wrapped around those and ripping them to pieces. So I don't use them. I, I prefer to go Hove 2 or Foreach or do a multitude of other options instead of uh, launching a drogue. But these guys, more modern boat. Anyway, the drogue has broken free. Too much tension. Who knows? Sometimes the boat will speed up, slack in a whole bunch of this drogue, and then get picked up. And as it speeds away again, it's too much, and the whole thing explodes. So now they've lost their ability to really slow this boat and control it. And the waves are now up in like the 50 to 70-foot range. I mean, astronomical. So they're going, and eventually they get hit really bad with a huge breaking wave, and it throws them on their sides, and they're all down below. you got to picture this. You're down below. You've only got a couple lights, the instrument panels, and then suddenly you're just hearing this rumble outside, and then a huge impact like a car crash, and then all of a sudden your whole world turns completely almost upside down, and stuff is being thrown around, and you get thrown around, and... JP, the captain, gets thrown into a table and ends up breaking some ribs. It's really just a bad scene. And the whole time you're thinking, How, when is this going to end? Is it going to stop? And you don't know because the ocean can just keep throwing this stuff at you. And that's when you start thinking, and I've thought to myself this plenty of times, will this boat hold up to this? How, how long can we take this sort of punishment before things just start to fall apart? Now, again, Mighty Sparrow, pretty overbuilt, burly, burly boat. So my confidence level in her ability to take a beating is pretty high. But more modern boats, sometimes it's not so good. There's a lot of different materials mixed in, trying to make the boats lighter and this and that. And, um, you know, sometimes when you compromise speed for strength and you get into a bad situation, that that can, uh, can end up happening. So... They're going, and they're still just trying to go. They go up and check on deck to make sure at least the life raft is there, check and make sure the mast is there, and everything still is okay. So they head back down below again, but it's not too long before another giant wave, boom, smashes into the boat. This time, I believe they get turned all the way over so they get rolled, and during this roll, the mast breaks. So now the mast comes down. And they actually go up on deck because now, now they're in this whole other situation. It becomes a game of really survival in this, in this instance of this boat might be going down. We need to check this all out. 
And they go up there and they find that the life raft is not where it once was. It's not in its little cradle. And then they look and they see that it had actually been deployed off the side and was now stuck underneath the mast, which is hanging off the side. It's still connected by all the wires. And actually, it's a really bad situation because that mast can puncture that life raft pretty easily. And once that life raft goes, that's it. If that boat sinks, they are absolutely done. You're only going to survive a little little while in conditions like that without at least a life raft to depend on. And so they go, and there's sort of these heroics and all this stuff, and they're trying their best to do it, and they free up that life raft. And by this point, the boat is pretty much, uh, the bow is starting to go down. It's not looking good. Their cabin, a big chunk of it had been ripped away, and that had their EPIRB on it. And they were able to grab a few flares and what's called a G-PERB, which is sort of an even more updated version of an EPIRB, which is a, a emergency position indicating radio beacon. So essentially you fire it off, goes to the Coast Guard, they know where you are. A G-PERB takes it to the next level and they can actually pinpoint your position using GPS. And so they know exactly where you are. Uh, and so they end up getting in this life raft. So now there's three guys, they're on this life raft and they're just getting absolutely pummeled by 70 foot waves and horrific winds in, in between the waves. They're not feeling any wind at all. And then they get up to the peak and all of a sudden it's like hurricane force blasts them. And then they drop back down. And I will put a link in the description. There is YouTube footage from the Coast Guard helicopter that goes out and actually uh, attempts at the rescue of these guys. And you can see this life raft going up and down these massive, massive waves. It's really, really incredible. And if you do watch it, keep an eye as they pull the first guy up off the boat. Oh, my gosh. He looks like the walking dead. It's uh, it's disturbing to say the least, but it's also really hopeful. Um, so as the night goes on, they fired off their EPIRB and now they just have to basically wait it out and they're in this life raft, but the life raft's getting like turned over and eventually they're just clinging onto it. They can't even, uh, really sit in it anymore because it's just getting ripped to pieces. These waves are absolutely massive and, um, they end up, having a airplane that comes out because it's gotten this 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 beacon this rescue beacon has has pinged off and so they're not really sure which boat it's for because he had an the EPIRB that he had was from his old boat and then the new one the GPIRB was re-registered but there was some sort of glitch and it was also registered under the same number of a different boat there was some sort of crazy stuff that went on there and in any event, they figured, well, there's somebody in trouble out there. Let's just go out there. And they take this plane out because they're they're pretty far offshore. And they get out there, and they're firing off. They go to fire off the flares, and the first flare won't work. And the second flare won't work. And then they've just got that last one. They fire it off, and boom, it takes off. And somehow, aboard that, aboard that airplane... Somebody just glanced it right out of the just corner of their eye. So they circled back and then they were able to see it. So now it's rescue operation time. We've got to get a helicopter out there, try and pull these guys out. And really that's, that's uh, now those guys just have to endure those conditions. And you have to imagine 
a 70-foot breaking wave is absolutely a mountain. I mean, it's one thing to see it from the deck of a sailboat, but now you're actually at water level, and this huge hill of water comes up, and maybe the top 20 or 30 feet of it is just a big breaking. You've know, ever watched a surfing movie where they go into the, the big, big swells. I mean, essentially, that's what they're dealing with, and these guys are just sitting in there. And to me, it just, holy cow, I don't even know how you can prevent yourself from drowning in those conditions because when the winds are blowing that hard, the, the only time you might be able to breathe properly is in between these big waves because the sea spray has got foam in it. It's blowing water all over the place. I mean, it's, it's just a nightmare just to try and actually be able to breathe even though your head might be technically out of the water. So eventually the, the rescue helicopter does come and it's daytime and they're, that's where they got the footage from and they're, they're down there and they have to go in. And one of the biggest troubles is that these cables are only so long, but these waves are so huge and these, these Coast Guard rescue guys are just shocked. Most of them will say that this was the most extreme uh, sea state they've ever encountered in their lives and and they'd be hovering and then they would have to actually uh, increase altitude because of the size of the waves coming was too dangerous it might actually just take the helicopter out and that's just I mean that's insane they're they're reading on their altimeter uh, you know it, it might say a hundred feet and then it'll say 25 feet which means you know a 75 foot wave just passed underneath them. So it's just this chaotic, horrible thing, but hats off to the Coast Guard because those guys were able to pluck all three of them from the water, from that little life raft, probably one of the most intense rescues ever performed by, by those guys in such, such just horrible, horrible circumstances. And the three of them made it back. They had to go to the hospital, get checked out. They were pretty much all hypothermic. JP had the broken ribs. And, uh, and then they were released afterwards, and they survived to tell the tale. And it really is, it, it just goes to show, I think, the, the takeaway from this, because I've, I've had quite a few people talk to me about, you know, how, how, do you, how are you so you know, brave, so to speak, uh, to go and try and sail like around the world? Well, I don't think I'm that different from any other sailor who is just cruising up and down the coast or maybe going across the Atlantic, an offshore sailor, because you don't have to go to a place like the Southern Ocean to see absolutely devastating, terrible conditions. You can be out for just a trip to Bermuda from Newport, and you cross that Gulf Stream and get into these conditions and... You know, that that may be worse than I would see if I tried to go around the world five times. So uh, I think really anybody that ventures offshore, it's always good to know that those conditions can come up, however rare they are, because that would have been considered a hundred year storm, I'm sure. It really is something where, you know, uh, you have to take it seriously and you always want to make sure you're in the best possible boat. 
and you're watching the weather as, as good as you can, and then you also have your game plan involved. And I would never want to sit here and say, well, I think I would have done, because you can never actually say that unless you're on that boat in that situation, because no storms are the same. They're always going to be a little different, and you're going to have to take different tactics. So the lesson I take from it is try and have as many storm tactics in your arsenal as possible, so that when you do go out, you've got a lot of different options. And again, big hats off to the Coast Guard for being able to get out there and protect these guys. Because, you know, without them, they they almost assuredly would not have survived. And they would have lost a whole lot more than just their boat. So thank you for watching and listening. And uh, more to come.